They're ignorant. They're making dogmatic assertions of which they knew absolutely nothing about. And I hope you realize this. Because there are false teachers who fill the airwaves, who are very flamboyant, very char charismatic, and with absolute authority, they talk about things they know absolutely nothing about. In fact, they teach error with assurance. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of 1 Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to pastors Timothy and Titus. Yesterday, Pastor Carl concluded his introduction to this book, and today we're going to begin a look at three responsibilities of a pastor and his people. This letter was originally written to Pastor Timothy, but as we join Dr. Brogy, we'll see that it's also written to today's pastors and today's congregations. Last week, if you remember, we began a brand new series on the pastoral epistles. Three books in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But these books are not written simply to individual men. They're written not only to Titus and Timothy, but all pastors of all time. But they're not simply written to pastors. They're written to entire congregations. And 1 Timothy, along with the other pastoral epistles, teach us how we are to function together. And here in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he gives some very helpful counsel to the church as it is to lead as to its leadership, its government, its conduct, and its goals. And without that, the church will be led astray into heresy. But with it, the church can be guarded and protected to fulfill the purpose for which God intended. Now, of course, this letter, along with the second one, is addressed to Timothy, Paul's son in the faith. Timothy was begotten by Paul, converted through his first missionary journey. Paul was his spiritual father. And so in the opening words of this epistle, he refers to him as my true child in the faith. It was the faith of Jesus Christ that had united these two men. And it's our faith that unites this congregation of people. We are from all walks of life, all races, all economic backgrounds, but God has brought us together into a family because of the same Holy Spirit who lives in my heart, lives in yours if you've been born again. By faith, we have been made children of God and brought into brothers and sisters in a family. And as in any family, sometimes when it comes to our relatives, there are some that you... Oh, you love seemingly more than others. I mean, you love them all. You know, you go to their funeral and cry at it, but you wouldn't want to go on vacation with some of them. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, Paul loved the people of God, but he had a special endearment for Timothy. When he wrote to the church at Philippi, he said, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, a man of kindred spirit, had made such progress in his spiritual walk with God that by the time Paul goes around for round two of the missionary journeys, he asks Timothy to come along. And by the time he writes this first epistle to Timothy, Timothy is no longer traveling with him. He's been left to oversee the church at Ephesus. And he finds himself under great and heavy responsibility because Paul commissions him to deal with false teaching that had crept into the church. Now, twice over, Paul says, I want to come to you, and I want to come soon. 
But in the interim, he gives him some pointed instruction and encouragement. And so behind Timothy is the Apostle Paul. Paul comes with his authority to affirm, affirm Timothy, Timothy's authority as a pastor. And Timothy is to remain on at Ephesus to deal with these false teachers. Now you and I know very well that there are false teachers in the church. All across America today, all across the world today, there are men and women who are false teachers and false prophets. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe what the Word of God says. And not only are there false prophets, but as we move to the end of the end days, the last of the last days, God said it would be on the increase, not the decrease. And so there's a great need for Christians, for pastors, for members to stand for the truth. And so God does not want Timothy to run. He wants him to guard and protect the flock of God. He's not to be silenced. He is to contend for the truth. Now, with that said, let's read our portion of Scripture. We left off on verse 6, but I want to get on a running start this morning so we can appreciate the context. Let's begin 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. And I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Now in our passage today, Paul gives Timothy some helpful instruction on how the local church is to be run. And so he spells out for him three responsibilities of a pastor and his people. If you're using the note-taking outline there on the back of your bulletin, three responsibilities I want us to see that every pastor and every church member has. The first responsibility, very simply, is we are to teach the law of God. We're to teach the law of God. Now, in verses 6 through 20, Paul helps us to understand the relationship between God's law and the gospel. And this is a very important passage of Scripture because a number of these verses are being used out of context today and have created great controversy in the church. Now, we noted last time that these false teachers who had crept into the church at Ephesus were guilty of teaching strange doctrine. He said in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we saw five English words, not to teach strange doctrine, translating a single Greek word, heterodidaskalane. The reason I even bring it up is because Paul wants to highlight through a play on words a very important truth. Heterodidaskalane, heteros, 
is the Greek word that means other or different or another. Translated here, strange. We speak of a heterosexual versus homos, homo, the same, Greek meaning the same, homosexual versus a heterosexual, meaning someone of a different sex. Didasco, we get our English word didactic. When we speak of something that's didactic, we speak of something that's come into the realm of teaching that's instructive. And so we have our word heterodoxy, which simply means something that is different. And so heterodoxodane, to teach strange doctrine, to teach something totally different. It's the same word later on in chapter 6 when he speaks of those who teach different doctrine. And here in verse 6, he says, For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Now, why have they turned aside into fruitless discussion, vain or empty talk? because they were guilty of straying away, he says, from these things. And what are these things that he, they have strayed away from? Well, it goes back to what he said in verse 5. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when men swerve from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, they will wander away from truth and they will potentially embrace all kinds of error. They will enter into vain, empty, fruitless discussions. Now, behind most false teachers and behind most of their followers who embrace their false teaching is not a problem of the mind. It's a problem of morality. You can mark it down cold and fast. A man's morality will dictate his theology. Joseph Smith, a false teacher, the founder of Mormonism, was a polygamist. He wanted multiple wives. And so he wrote a book that legitimized his immorality because a man's morality will always dictate his theology. You can bank on it. It's an axiom of God. Furthermore, we're told here in verse 7 that these protagonists are men who, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters of which they, are make, which they make confident assertions. Now this phrase, teachers of the law, is another very interesting compound word. And Paul uses it to almost, in the Greek text, underline something to get our attention. But we can pick it up in our own English Bibles. Not to teach strange doctrine. Those were the heterodidascaloi, the teachers who taught strange doctrine. Now he teach, teach, he speaks of the nomos didascaloi. Nomos, law, nomenclature. These were teachers of the law. They were law teachers. And so the heteroidedascaloi, the law teachers, were the ones who were teaching false or strange doctrine, another doctrine. That should jump out at you. Because on the one hand, Paul says, they're not to teach strange doctrine. You're to silence them, Timothy. On the other hand, he says the doctrine that they are teaching is the Bible. They're teaching the law of God. They were teachers of the law, and of course we know that the law was given by God. All Scripture was given by inspiration of the Spirit. So you would not think that it was a bad thing that they would teach the law of God. But while they were teaching the law, while they were teaching the Bible, it could also be said that they were teaching different doctrine, strange doctrine, because they were teaching the law in a false way. Look what he says in verse 7. They do not understand what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident 
assertions. They're ignorant. They're making dogmatic assertions of which they knew absolutely nothing about. And I hope you realize this because there are false teachers who fill the airwaves who are very flamboyant, very charismatic, and with absolute authority, they talk about things they know absolutely nothing about. In fact, they teach error with assurance. As authoritative people, they dogmatically teach that which is downright wrong. And they have an open Bible when they do it. And if you're not careful, if you're not discerning to what God says, you can easily get sucked right into their false theology. Now, the liberals love to use 1 Timothy 1.7, 1 Timothy 1.9, saying, well, the law is for the lawless. And Paul says you don't even have to teach the law. And so the law has no place today in the life of the Christian. And they proof text their false doctrine, primarily using 1 Timothy 1.7. You know, when you proof text something, you take a text of Scripture to prove what you believe. But some do it by taking a text of Scripture totally out of its context. So God, for instance, says today that you shouldn't uh, eat uh, meat that splits the hoof in Leviticus 11. So some conclude, hey, right here, Leviticus 11, shouldn't eat pork. Well, we're going to have a lot of it on Tuesday night, and I hope you can come and enjoy it with me. But I want to tell you what, God declared all meats clean. But they proof text it. They take it out of the realm in which it was taught. And so this condemnation of the law has become a proof text today with those who teach the new morality. And the new morality is nothing more than the old immorality. The new morality says the law of God has been abolished, and that's why we have these churches and denominations that are talking about ordaining homosexuals into the ministry. That's why we have churches who have wandered away from sound doctrine. We have churches today who are debating the role of women in the church. We have churches today who are questioning monogamous marriage. We have churches today who are questioning the moral dictates of Scripture. And they do so saying the law of God is no longer authoritative. They say the only thing that is absolute is love, and even that they don't define with some objective standards. And often, they appeal to Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul to give force to their argument. They'll say, well, did not Jesus himself condemn the legal rigidity of the Pharisees? Did not the Lord himself break the Sabbath? And did not Paul say that Christ is the end of the law and we are not, that we are under grace and not under law? And so these teachers of the new morality say that this passage condemns those who teach the law. And Paul wants us to know otherwise. He says... These are people who are teaching things they know nothing about. And of course, we need to examine Paul's assertions here in the context. Otherwise, it will make no sense at all. Look what he says here at the beginning of verse 8. But we know that the law is good. What do you mean, Paul? I thought you just said that we shouldn't teach the law. You just condemned law teachers. Well, let's not proof text it out of its context. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The fact that Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully tells me that there is an unlawful use of the law as well as a lawful use of the law. There is a legitimate use of the word of God and illegitimate use of it. Peter addresses the same issue. When he speaks of men, the untaught and the unstable, who distort the scriptures to their own destruction. 
And these false teachers, like so many today, were using the law unlawfully and they needed to be silenced. Now, he's not repudiating the law. He's not saying that the scriptures should not be taught in reference to their moral application. Rather, he is repudiating these false teachers who have a wrong use of the law. And so Paul proceeds to give us a true understanding of God's law. And he contrasts his understanding with the understanding of the false teachers. Look at verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying... He says, they don't understand what they're talking about. And so he contrasts their understanding with his. He begins verse 8, but we know. That is, we do understand. We understand what we're talking about. We know the law is good. In fact, he begins verse 9, realizing this. The King James says, understanding this. We understand, we realize what they don't realize and understand. And so Paul is making a contrast between their mistaken understanding and between his correct understanding. So let's think about it with the Apostle Paul. First, let's consider the wrong use of the law, the wrong use of the law. Now, if you lived in the first century, you would have witnessed several ways in which the law of God, the scriptures, were abused and misused. Several ways in which the law was unlawfully used. Ways that are not all that different from what we see in our day. For instance, there are the Pharisees who abused the word of God. They were the Jesuits of the day. They were the official teaching order of the first century. They're called in Luke 5, the teachers of the law. But they had turned the word of God into a set of external rules. They claimed to be teaching, interpreting, and applying the law of Moses. But in reality, they were tampering and manipulating with the law of God. So a Pharisee says, well, we don't commit adultery. But Jesus said, but you commit adultery in your heart. The Pharisee says, but we've never murdered anyone. But Jesus said, your hearts are filled with murderous and angry thoughts. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with the false use of the law and he warns people that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a different kind of righteousness through a second birth than what those men had. Another example of those who abused and misused the law were the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the legalists who taught that you basically earned your salvation through your obedience to the law. And then there's the problem that at hand that Timothy faced, the allegorizers. Those who had turned, Paul says, into Jewish myths and, uh, and, and endless genealogies. Those who took the word of God and spiritualized it. They basically said God did not mean what he said and said what he meant. Let me tell you what he really meant. And they made the Bible mean whatever they wanted it to mean. They took the Old Testament scriptures and turned them into a, a set of mysteries and riddles and enigmas and conundrums and, and it meant absolutely nonsense. And so Bible study for them was an academic thing. Bible study for them was just a mental exercise rather than a moral exercise. Now while the law cannot save you as the legalist taught, nor can it be ignored by those who are saved, neither can you allegorize it away and say it has no meaning. There was an unlawful use of the law. And that's what Paul is warning Timothy of, that he asks him, he asks him to silence. So first he addresses the unlawful use of the law, the wrong use of the law. But notice also the right use of the law. Verse 8, 
But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul is saying God's word, God's law is good as long as it's used rightfully. And so what is the fundamental purpose of the law? You see, if we can discover its original purpose, then we can discover its proper use. Now, Paul does not describe all of the purposes of the law, but he describes at least one here in verse 9. And he defines it not in the academic realm, but in the moral realm. Look at verse 9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. Paul is saying the law, among other things, is designed for those who naturally want to break it. That's why laws are given. If everyone by nature would automatically obey what was right, there would be no need to have a law. And if you come to think of it, that's true in every realm of law. The only use of the law, or the primary use, is for the lawless. For example, there would be no need for speed limits and other traffic laws if everyone drove courteously, safely, carefully. There would no need to put a hedge around your yard to, to fence it in, to mark your boundaries, to have clear delineations through leases and contracts if, if people would not uh, violate the law of God, if people would not trespass. There would be no need for, for marriage laws or divorce laws if God's original purpose for a permanent monogamous marriage was held and honored by men. There would be no need for laws that deal with race relations or civil rights legislation if man was always impartial. The law is for the lawless. It is to show a man what he ought to be and to condemn a man when he's not. That's the purpose of the law. And if that's true of the law of the land, it's certainly true of the law of God. Now, Paul is not saying that a righteous man, understand how he uses the phrase righteous man throughout his epistles, sometimes experientially, sometimes positionally. Hear the latter. When you got saved... God justified you. He declared you righteous. And if you are in Jesus Christ today, you're as holy as God through God's eyes. That's why God calls every true believer a saint. You are righteous. But understand that when God declared you righteous, when God made you a child of God, He gave you a law that you are still to follow. You still have an obligation to obey it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. Paul is not saying that a righteous man, a Christian, should ignore the law of God. Otherwise, that would contradict this verse. Look, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. That is to say, the law could not save you. You could not be saved by your moral obedience to, to the law. You could not be saved by your good deeds. Because to be saved by good deeds, you would have to perfectly keep the law because James says to violate one point of the law is to be guilty of the whole law. So what the law could not do, that is it could not save you because it was weak in your sinful, fallen flesh. 
What it could not do, God did. How? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? As an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ, in His own body on the cross, took all of your sin. He took the curse of the law upon Himself. Why did He do that? Not just to deal with the penalty of your sin, but also to call you to a new life. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul is clearly teaching that the law has application for the believer. It's obligatory on the believer, and that, for that matter, for all mankind. But what he's teaching here in 1 Timothy is that the law is not to be a chain around your heart. It's not to be a fetter to enslave you such that through your obedience you earn a life that is pleasing to God. Listen, I don't need a law that says thou shalt not murder your parents because I love God. I've been born again and I love my parents. You don't have to write a law thou shalt not murder your parents because I don't want to murder my parents. And what Paul is saying here, these false teachers who unlawfully used the law taught it in such a way because they taught that obedience to it redeemed you. And God says that's impossible. But they taught it in such a way that it produced bondage and servitude. It was kept, they taught, to earn the favor of God, something you can never earn. But those of us who are under the grace of God understand that God has accepted us in Jesus Christ through the merit of His Son. And so you don't need a law to try to make you to obey because you want to obey. You have a new want to. And so the purpose of the law is not to fetter the righteous, it's to restrain the wicked. The law is designed, he says here, for the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, the unholy, and so on. So Paul moves from that more general statement to a more particular statement. And when he gives his list for which the law was made, he doesn't just pull it out of the air. The Holy Spirit directs them, and it follows perfectly the Ten Commandments. We could spend a whole sermon on this, but let me just plant the seed in your heart, and you can go back and study it more this week. For instance, follow the flow of thought here in verse 9. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless or rebellious. Notice the first group that he mentions, those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, the lawless are those who refuse to recognize the law of God. The rebellious are those who are unwilling to submit to the law of God. And taken together, and these two words are connected together inseparably in the Greek text, it's a violation of the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because these kinds of people were their own God. They were a God unto themselves. He continues, for the ungodly and sinners. Now, ungodly describe those people who have no inner reverence for God. They willfully ignore what God says in His Word. He's not necessarily speaking here of a professed atheist, but those who disregard the will of God for their life. And sinners, one of 11 words translated as such in the New Testament, describes a group of people who in their practice oppose God. And so taken together, it's a violation of the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven images. You shall not worship or serve them. And so we have people today who are serving their own created gods because they are ungodly and sinners. The law was intended for those who are lawless, the ungodly, and for sinners. 
When we return tomorrow, we'll see that the law is also for the unholy and profane, along with a laundry list of others. For a copy of today's program, Three Responsibilities of a Pastor and His People, the second in our series on 1 Timothy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM2. This series is vitally important in this day and age, as much of what Paul warned Timothy about apostasy is taking place across the land. We encourage you to get a copy and share it with your friends. You can also hear it online at our website, searchthescriptures.org. And while there, why not drop us a line and let us know your thoughts about this ministry? We'd love to hear from you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Timothy and Search the Scriptures.